Thanks to Bombfell for sponsoring today's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by... 500 of my closest fool friends and no Robert Brokamp to be found. Aww. This week, we're sneaking you into the back door of our annual festival of investing foolishly. Fool Fest. We'll get a lesson in failure and tenacity from the founder and CEO of Texas Roadhouse and find out why Bernie Madoff believes his Ponzi scheme didn't fail. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. While many restaurant chains are currently having a hard time staying afloat, Texas Roadhouse, the steakhouse with line dancing servers and buckets of peanuts, has expanded to over 400 restaurants around the globe. If you've ever been to this steakhouse, you'd correctly assume that the founder of the company enjoys a good time. But Kent Taylor is also no stranger to failure. He sat down with Bill Mann to talk about how he embraces failure and it has led to the company's success. When you first opened Texas Roadhouse, it wasn't as if you just threw open the doors and were, you know, and success just reigned in. I mean, you, no, it no, was a struggle. No. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, well, I guess for starters, I tried to raise money for seven or eight years, got turned down. Uh, and so I would make a game of how many times I could get turned down in a month. Uh, but, but it was easy for me, because back when I was in college, I'd go to bars and try to get girls to dance with me, and they'd turn me down, so I was used to rejection. So it was practice. Pra- so, yeah. <laughs> so you were, you were practiced. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So when you opened your, you, you, you opened your first five restaurants, is that right? And no, I, in 93, I opened the first two. I got three doctors to back me. Mm-hmm. Uh, after having a lot of you know, smart investors turn me down, I figured I'd go for doctors that maybe <laughs> think they're a lot smarter in business than they really are, so that was good. And uh, I would like to apologize to any doctors in the room. <laughs> no, they're, I, my original doctor is very smart on the doctoring you know, area, but you know, maybe not the other. Um, and then uh, three of the first five failed, uh, so all three I opened in 94 failed, so I had to rethink you know, things, uh, work on the food, make it better, work on the building, make it better, uh, figure out how to attract you know, uh, sharper people. And it took about 10 stores, I think, before you know, kind of connected a lot of the dots. So, um, and, then, and then from that point, uh, we seemed to do better. But I, I, I did raise private funds in 98, uh, when we had you know, 20, 20, 30 stores, and brought a lot of great people in, but the next year we lost $3 million, uh, so, because a lot of stores were yeah. you know, in, in, uh, getting ready to open, and then that next year we made $3 million, so you gotta kinda you know, bite the bullet a little bit to, to move ahead down the road. And just thinking about having three stores close, right, I mean, that is, that, you know, that's, that's blood money at that point. No, no, it is. Actually, yeah. I couldn't pay myself, and I'd, I'd moved back in yeah. with my folks, and I was raising two kids at the time. And, and my dad, this is the second time I'd moved in with my dad and mom with the two kids, and my dad's like, okay, how long this time? And I'm so like, they were not three months. They were not convinced at that uh, point no, that you no, my, your uh, way. No, no, my dad told me I might want to, like, get a job with a big corporation or something. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that we were talking about before uh, was that you felt like it was store number 10 with the Texas Roadhouse concept. Yeah, that's when I created the actual prototype that we still have today. Yeah with the display uh, cooking out front and, uh, 
you know, really dialed in the recipes, things like that. Yeah, and and to this day, every other every other uh, outlet, every store that you open is basically the same as from it, it store looks 10. the same. We've modernized the kitchens and things like that. Um, but the cool thing is we've only closed three stores since those first five out of 520. So I, that's a yeah. decent hit ratio, I guess. So I understand that your uh, that, that your office is basically uh, you you basically have a monument to failure in your office. Oh, uh, you must have talked to Travis. Um, <laughs> Travis is not your monument oh, okay. to failure. No, I, I do have a fish, a skull, and a fish from this three stores I closed in '94, and underneath the fish when they started, when they died, and how much money we lost. And then uh, there's a, a franchisee that I was having a disagreement with. He sent me a skunk's butt, and I got that on the wall as well. <laughs> and uh, then I've got a rejection letter from uh, Steak and Ale when they rejected my idea back in the 80s when I worked for him, thank God. And, Who uh, here so, remembers yeah. Steak and Ale, by the way? <laughs> remembers. Right. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's, I've been rejected by a lot of folks. Yeah. By some of the right folks, it seems. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You've had some very interesting people who you have invested with you or have you know you've you've run after for investments and yeah I've had a few stories of yeah. some uh, yeah I'll I'll give you I, Larry Bird I was on a plane with Larry Bird years ago and I handed my proposal to the flight attendant said please give it to Larry and when I got off the plane I said what do you think what do you think and she goes well I didn't want to bother him so I didn't give it to him so I ran down the airport and right <laughs> as he was getting in the car I was like Mr Bird Mr Bird now I just heard him say Dad close the car let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then uh, I was on vacation once, and I heard Ross Pro had a house somewhere. So I got a little moped, and I went and got through the gate. Told him I was a uh, delivery person, and I went up to his doorstep. Never heard from him either. And uh, then the last one was uh, Garth Brooks. I tried three times to get to see with him, and even brought ribs and beer down once, and I still didn't get to see him. So, uh, oh. <laughs> So I drank the beer on the way home. <laughs> I've absolutely lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, I think a lot of folks that run, you know, restaurant chains, you know, didn't work for years like I did, you know, running restaurants. And when I was at KFC, you know, I got in trouble for, you know, making new menu items. When I was at Bennigan's, I did the same thing. So I've always thought, you know, as an individual when I was working for these other chains, so, so I, I encourage our people that work for us to come up with great ideas, and I'd say most of the great things we have come up with, it's not me, it's mm -hmm. our people in the field that will call up and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Like, oh, that's awesome, we're gonna let you try it, or something like that. So you guys, I mean, we were joking about failure and the skunk butts and mm -hmm. things of that nature, but you embrace failure. Like oh, that's absolutely, a big, yeah. I mean, that's a we, huge uh, part of your culture. Yeah, that's why when, People are in training and come to Louisville, they go through my office and they get to see, you know, me embracing failure. And so it's okay for them to try things. They may fail, but we're fine with that. We're gonna boogie back in Texas, eight feet to the mile. Can't you see I'm on my way? Boogie! Thanks to Bombfell for sponsoring today's episode. Bombfell is an online personal styling service. After completing a simple questionnaire, you are matched one-on-one -on -one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece. Clothing is shipped straight to your door. Pay for the clothes you keep and send back the rest at no charge. Earlier today, I asked Dylan Lewis from Motley Fool's Industry Focus what he thought of Bombfell, and he had this to say. 
I have a lot of trouble buying pants. <laughs> like this is this is like a serious ongoing issue in my life. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, because I have like a I'd say reasonably athletic body and I like tailored or like skinny jeans and that doesn't really sync up all that well. You'd be surprised. Okay. And so when I saw the questionnaire and I saw they were going to be sending jeans, I was just like, all right, this is like laughable. Like there's like I can't find jeans that fit me well. There's no way they're going to be able to. And they sent them and they fit like a glove. I wear them all the time. I'm wearing them right now, Allison. Awesome. So yeah, you'd recommend the service then, it sounds like. Yeah, they seem to know what they're doing over there. We have a special offer just for listeners of the show. For $25 off your first purchase, go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool for $25 off your first purchase. Bernie Madoff perpetrated the largest financial fraud in history. After he pled guilty to ripping off 4,800 investors to the tune of nearly $64 billion, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison. Despite everyone clamoring for his story, there was only one reporter he was willing to sit down with, Diana Enriquez, who covered the story for the New York Times. Her interviews with Madoff became the book The Wizard of Lies and later the HBO movie of the same name. Chris Hill sat down with Diana to talk about her experience with Madoff, including his amazing capacity to never admit failure, even in the case of his massive Ponzi scheme. When did the fraud begin? And was there a point in time when Madoff was running a legitimate firm? I think there was a point in time. I I know there was a point in time when Madoff was running a legitimate uh, wholesale trading firm. And I think that wholesale trading business um, remained legitimate um, uh, throughout his history. It was was a legitimate business the day he was arrested. Um, He started managing money for other people as a very young man. And as I recount in the book, there was an episode in 1962 where he had put, I was managing money for maybe three or four dozen friends and family and family of friends, et cetera. And he put them in uh, win-issued stocks in the OTC market, but you were the equivalent of the tech bubble stocks uh, of of 1999. And there was a... uh, market crash, they called it the air, air pocket uh, crash in um, May of 1962. Um, and the market, it was the worst week in the market since 1929. We don't even remember it now, but it was the worst week that uh, the market had experienced. And these win issued stocks were wiped out in hours and his investors had lost all their savings. And what Bernie did, and t- explained this to me in the prison interview, um, he made them whole. It took all the capital he had in his little firm, but he bought their stocks back at par and never told them he had done so. Lied to them about, uh, about what had happened. You know, he, had, he had sold them out early. They had been spared this drop. So that's not a Ponzi scheme. It is actually the opposite of a Ponzi scheme. He's, uh, you know, he's robbing Bernie to pay his investors. Um, but it is a lie. It is a massive lie that earned him his investors' trust and also showed him what he could get away with. So he was ethically challenged from the get-go. But I think that so long as the market made it possible for Bernie to produce um, uh, attractive returns, 
le uh, honestly, legally, he, he would do that. Um, but when the market didn't allow him to do that, uh, rather than admit that he couldn't beat the market, he cheated. Now that's why I think he started cheating at least by the 1980s. There is a mutual fund, there was a mutual fund called the Gateway Fund that was pursuing an investment strategy very similar to what Madoff claimed to be doing. And that fund's track record I was able to unearth in doing the research for the Madoff book. Um, and you can, you can see what's happening to that fund. Nice, consistent returns, just like Madoff was reporting until 83, 84, 85, and then it starts to get very choppy. And then they dropped that strategy. They went to a different, uh, a different investment strategy. Bernie didn't, and yet he continued to get these nice, consistent returns. That's why I think the fraud had begun, at least by then. We can't rule out the possibility, Chris, that he had gone in and out of Ponzi mode several times prior to uh, 1993 when, it was, when he claims the fraud started. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think it was a Ponzi scheme by 85, 86, certainly by the crash of 87, it was a Ponzi scheme. And there's so much work that goes into it. That's one of the astonishing things to me about this story, as you illustrate in the book, that he was so meticulous. He worked so hard at, at yeah. this scheme that part of my reaction was, well, gosh, why, you know, if you, why don't you just pour that into honest work? But I, I'm just wondering if on some level he was just a broken person because I, you know, and a few folks have asked this question, why do you think he did it? Um, I, I, there's something about Madoff that, that just cannot tolerate the thought of himself as a failure at anything. I mean, all of us kind of accept that there's some things we're not good at and that, you know, and most of us can look back on a career where we failed at something or another, fell short of what we'd hoped for, didn't do as good a job at that project as we thought we should have. Most of us can look back on that. Bernie can't. He can't tolerate the idea that he has failed at anything. Now, you know, his, his father was a serial business failure. Maybe that is, is part of the roots of what he was dealing with. But when I interviewed him in prison, I was looking for that moment, as any author would, the moment when he crossed the line. You know, you want him to remember that day where he knows he's gone from being an honest man on Wall Street to being a crook. And I was pressing him on that. He couldn't remember exactly when that had happened. I don't believe that. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, his argument to me was, well, I thought it was a temporary step and I would get back on the, you know, I would get back on the right side of it so it didn't make a big impression on him at the time. He didn't really think of, think of it as a crime. But as I was framing that question, I asked him, I asked it this way. I said, tell me about that moment when you first knew that your Ponzi scheme uh, was failing. And he quickly he said, it didn't fail. And I'm here in the prison, you know. Um, <laughs> and he's in here for 150 years. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean it didn't fail? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I could have kept it going. Lots of people still wanted to give him money. He rattled off some bold-faced names you would have recognized. Uh, you know, Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund was going to put in another four or $500 million. He rattled off 
that he could have kept the fraud going if he had wanted to. He just was tired of the whole tap dance and decided to quit, decided to let it fall apart. And I, I mean, I'm just speechless at the time that he's saying this, um, but it is clear to me that he really meant it. He really uh, had deluded himself that he was still in control, that, that he had not failed at this Ponzi scheme, despite the fact that he's in prison. So why did he do it? I think he did it because he was always more comfortable being a liar than a failure. He couldn't tolerate himself as a failure. Don't lie to me. Let's keep talking about scams, but in this case, a smaller one. Tim Hansen, The Motley Fool's head of product, shares a fascinating story about the brokerage firm that never actually made a trade, and what it can teach us about behavioral finance and managing our own investor temperament. Nanco trading began when two guys, uh, a man named Nurse Chirumrat, who lived in Bangkok, Thailand, and Adam Plumer, who lived in Las Vegas, met each other sort of on the internet and made an observation that day trading in the United States was really, really popular. And so they were like thinking up a business plan. How can we profit from all these day traders? And they conceived of a brokerage platform called Nonco that would offer free trades to day traders and free leverage. And that would be the value proposition for these people. I can come and trade as much as I want. It doesn't cost me anything. And I can lever up all my ideas. It won't cost me a thing. And that's different from most brokerage platforms, right? Because they charge you to trade and they charge you for leverage. But the epiphany that, that Plumer and Trimrat had was, hey, when these guys start making money from all these free trades and free leverage, we're just going to profit share with them, and our, and our brokerage platform will be really, really profitable. So they, they advertised these features, and they got a whole bunch of customer leads. But in order to make it onto the real Nonco platform, you had, to, you had to spend some time on a simulator showing them how good you were at day trading so that they could realize that you were profitable, and they'd put you, promote you onto the real platform. The business plan at that point completely fell apart. Can anybody guess why? Because everybody was terrible at day trading. These people were just losing money hand over fist. And so they had to, they had to reset themselves. All right, what are we going to do? And they pivoted. And what they did next might surprise you. So they, they identified the very worst of the day traders, and they invited them to come onto the platform. And um, they said, you know, go for it. Start trading. As in the simulation, these guys lost money hand over fist. But in a little more than a year, Nanko walked away with almost $2 million. How'd they do it? They never actually hooked up their brokerage platform to the stock market. So these, these customers would sit there day trading away, losing money. They'd fund the account. They'd sit there trading away. They'd watch the balance go to zero. And they'd say, oh, lost my money. Close my account, walk away. Their money, though, was sitting in a bank account in Belize. <laughs> and when they closed the account, Adam, the Troom Rat and Plumer just took a check, walked away, and went and bought some, bought some nice stuff. Now, to be clear, what they did was unethical, and it's illegal, and the SEC is investigating them, but it's also, I think, a little bit, a little bit brilliant. See, the, 
the intractable problem of a Ponzi scheme is that it causes people who are in it to think they have more of that money than is in the actual Ponzi scheme. And that assumption creates a mismatch between the actual value and the notional value. And so when there's a liquidity event, or a fancy word that just means when people want their money back, as the Madoff investors did during the 2009 downturn, it all blows up. But Nanco was the reverse. The, the customers just assumed their money was gone. And the SEC didn't catch them because any customer reported them. The way they got nailed was that the SEC saw them advertising for more customers and somebody said, huh, I don't think these guys registered as a broker-dealer. And then they said, huh, this broker-dealer who's not registered hasn't actually sent any trade flow to any exchange. And so they sent somebody down to investigate and it kind of unraveled from there. But I think if Jim Rumrat and Plumer had been a little bit more careful, they might have perpetuated that for quite a bit of time because it's, it's, it's pretty brilliant. Nanco wasn't a brokerage, but the fact that its customers assumed it was is exactly what made it possible for Nanco to defraud them out of almost $2 million. So my question to you all is what assumptions are you making that are putting you at risk? Is it that the stock market will return 6% annually forever? Is it that you'll be able to tolerate the inevitable 25% drop in the value of your portfolio? Is it that stocks beat bonds? Is it that you don't need to be diversified? Um, these are all important questions to ask. So make a list of your assumptions and examine them. And I think hopefully I've, there's value added simply in the realization that because such a small number of stocks account for the bulk of the market return, that maybe nobody in this room will ever sell a winning investment ever again. will make you you cry and cry and try to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through. Your cheating heart will tell on you. That's the show. It's edited fraudulently by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Until next week, stay foolish, everybody.